If you're doing the exact same thing to your other that you are claiming they do to you and quote people like you, how is that progress? How are you actually overturning or eliminating more to the point a rancid hierarchy that used to have white men at the top and everybody else below? How are you eliminating hierarchy when you now have simply flipped it over so that white men are at the bottom and everybody else above them? All you are doing in that case is exchanging jerseys on the field, but you're not changing the game. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, I'm Emily Yaffe. I'm on the board of advisors of Persuasion. And I wrote a story for them called A Taxonomy of Fear. In it, I wanted to look at the elements of cancel culture, how it has become so powerful and pervasive, and how we can best perhaps fight some of those elements. And my concern about it is that in an open society, especially one going through the kind of upheavals and difficulties we are, it's more important than ever that all of us feel able to openly discuss difficult, complicated issues. We arrive at better solutions if people can hear each other out. But on the right and the left, there are forces trying to silence people, punish them for ideas, even words that become unacceptable. As a person of the left, I wanted to address some of the things that are happening on our side. And people have raised the question, in the time of Donald Trump, what does it matter that anyone on the left does? We just have to get rid of him. I agree we have to get rid of him, but I think Donald Trump gives us a very good example of what happens when people see something going very wrong on their side. We have Trumpism now because Republicans who surely disagree with many of his policies, his tone, the way he speaks about people, other countries, have failed to stand up. That has empowered Trump. It has brought fear to their party, and the people who failed to stand up have abetted all this. On the left, we are seeing the politics of cancel culture, of silencing, unfold in real time. And that presents true dangers for us. So as I was working on this story, it became clear there are certain recurring patterns to this. So, And I wanted to highlight them, and I think it gives people an ability to identify it when they see it, say, I don't want to engage in that, and perhaps oppose it when they see it in other people. One of the qualities is what I call the perils of safety. Safetyism is a concept first written about by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff in their tremendous book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And uh, this, like many of the things that's happening now, began on campus with the idea that ideas, people, words, make people not just uncomfortable, but unsafe. This is a very dangerous concept because once you declare I am psychologically or physically unsafe when being presented with this person or this thought, that ends the discussion. Ironically, we all end up being less safe if we can't air ideas and debate what's happening. Another aspect of this is intent is irrelevant. This means that everyone's subjective reaction to things should rule how we respond to people or events. Now, in the criminal justice system, intent is a crucial part of finding someone responsible. But it is also a very crucial part of how we socially interact with each other. We must understand each other's intent and not assume the worst possible motives to people when they don't exist, perhaps. Then there's report to the authorities. Again, this was pioneered on campus. Anything that might make you uncomfortable, you should report to administrators. People can't 
workout problems themselves or say, you know, that made me uncomfortable. Can we talk about it? This idea that the authorities are there to intervene in anything that is possibly a source of discomfort is now spreading to the workplace. It's spreading from college campuses to high schools. This is very dangerous because it makes us less able to grapple with ideas or even treat people with a certain amount of generosity. All this leads to a real chilling effect in society. Some people say there isn't cancel culture. Tens of thousands of people aren't being canceled or fired every day. But you don't need mass firings. You just need a few examples to chill people and make them feel, I don't want to end up like that person being mobbed on Twitter or fired from my job for expressing my opinion. We live in an open society and to maintain that and our values, we have to be able to discuss things without fear that it could end one's livelihood or one's education. Thank you for listening. Emily Yaffe's piece called A Taxonomy of Fear was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, please head to www.persuasion.community. Today, I'm really thrilled to speak to Irhard Manji. Irhard has written a great piece for Persuasion in the last few weeks. She is also the founder of a Moral Courage project and the writer of a number of books, all of which try to get people on the other side of some important and salient divide to listen to each other. She wrote a set of very influential books advocating for a reformed version of Islam. But her latest book is even more interesting for our purposes. It is called Don't Label Me, An Incredible Conversation for Divided Times. What I really liked about this conversation is that it gives a set of really quite concrete suggestions for how we can engage people who disagree with us deeply in a way that is respectful but doesn't give up on our own views. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Irshad, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Glad to be here, Yasha. Something that I've talked about before on this podcast and that I think is very important, which is this sort of electoral vision of what a better functioning diverse democracy might look like. You know, there is this tendency on large parts of the progressive space on the left and just the institutional democratic party to essentially say the way to win against people like Donald Trump, the way to win against this far-right populism and authoritarianism is that the good sections of the population are growing, that the ethnic minorities and the highly educated are growing and they're voting for Democrats in greater numbers. And we just have to wait essentially for the other side of a political spectrum to make up a smaller share of a population or sometimes include a language to die off. And then, you know, the tolerant will win. And so we don't actually need to convince the people on the other side. We don't need to reassure them about the idea that they will have a fair place in this new society. We simply have to outvote them and that's going to get easier and easier over time. Rui Teixeira, who came up with the idea of the growing democratic majority, is one of the very interesting critics of that idea. And he has a great piece in Persuasion arguing why his theory has been misunderstood and why that's so dangerous. But tell me what the alternative is. If we wanted to actually win over a lot of people who now feel humiliated by liberals and progressives, who end up being willing to vote for somebody like Donald Trump because of that, can we reach them in a different way? How can we make them not feel humiliated in such a manner? If we hope to have an American political system which is less polarized by race, in which there's two political parties, both of which are genuinely ethnically diverse, in the electoral makeup. How do we get there? Well, I think it really begins with us, those of us who advocate for diversity. And, you know, in my book, Don't Label Me, I point out that as a poster child of multiculturalism, which I've been treated as for, you know, practically my entire life, I observe daily how diversity gets practiced. And over the last many years, it has been practiced as labeling, which reduces people 
any people, any individual to something less than we actually are, even when it's meant in a well-intentioned way, you know, to label somebody as black, as a way of acknowledging that their experience might be different from yours or mine. That person is not merely black. Within their so-called black experience, they also have had a backstory that shows that they are multifaceted, just like white guys are, just like a queer Muslim like myself is, just as a migrant like you, Yasha, are. By the way, I happen to be one too. So rather than fixating, obsessing, with demographic diversity. I think that we need to open up, ironically enough, diversify the definition of diversity to include diversity of viewpoint. And when we do that, we'll be able to appreciate that even people who seem very different from us politically, ideologically, are actually what I would call plurals, okay? That all of us are so much more than meets the eye. And if we can establish that common ground, namely that all of us are plurals, then that will allow us to frame people with whom we potentially disagree as people with backstories that we should try to understand. I don't mean this in a pitying way. I don't mean this in a condescending way. I mean it that we should try to understand because they have something to teach us about what it means to be human. But more than just teaching us, more than just learning from us, what we do when we do treat one another as plurals is that we actually give our so-called other the opportunity to lower their own emotional defenses and hear where we're coming from in a way that we frankly would not have a fighting shot of being heard before this common ground of being plurals is established. And, you know, a huge part of Don't Label Me is spent backing up these claims with cognitive psychology, with neuroscience, with behavioral economics, and the kinds of tips and tactics and techniques that I'm offering both in the book and in my teaching, I practice daily, whether it's on social media or whether it is with just other people, students included, who want to take issue with where I'm coming from. And I don't just mean conservatives. Most of my students tend to be liberals and progressives who think that or assume right from the beginning that I'm asking them to compromise with racism. When what I'm actually saying is that there are much more effective ways to defeat racism. The least effective way is to label white people as racists. The much better way is, in fact, to listen to where any white person, or for that matter, any person is coming from, so that you can appreciate that they are multidimensional, that they get the sense, the sincere sense, that they are being heard, and that therefore they will also give you the time of day. The key here, and this is an ironclad law of human psychology, is if you wish to be heard, you must first be willing to hear. Mandela knew that. Gandhi knew that. Rosa Parks was taught that in the workshops that she took at the very beginning of what became the civil rights movement. And either young people today are not being taught that anymore, or if they have been taught that, they need a reminder, as we all do. So what I'm teaching is counterintuitive. It is definitely countercultural, but it's nothing that we haven't put to the test before. Let's start just talking about the article that you wrote for Persuasion, which I thought was very interesting and a little counterintuitive. You said that as advocates for diversity, as you believe that we should build a diverse and multi-ethnic democracy, may have a problem with intolerance ourselves. So we have to become more tolerant of those who perhaps don't think of themselves in quite the same terms. What do you mean by that? And why should we be tolerant towards people who many of us perceive as being intolerant? You know, it's an interesting observation you make that perhaps I'm asking my fellow liberals and progressives to be tolerant of the intolerant. Nothing could be further from the truth. The major point I make in the persuasion piece is that those whom we assume are intolerant, those whom we suspect 
of being intolerant typically are not. You know, I was surprised when I went through the research to find that even after Trump was elected, the majority of Republicans surveyed said that they support affirmative action. There was a time when affirmative action was the third rail. You know, it was such a lightning rod and that there was a clear demarcation between Democrats who increasingly supported affirmative action and Republicans who absolutely did not. But that has simply ceased to be the case. Even back in 2015, on another issue related to diversity, most Republicans surveyed by NBC and the Wall Street Journal said that they would prefer an openly gay president to an evangelical Christian president. And that was, you know, my first glimpse into this emerging new order, an order in which liberals and progressives wielded and continue to wield far more cultural power than do those whom we perceive as our adversaries. So the point I'm making with even more stats than I've just articulated right now in the persuasion piece is that actually on issues related to diversity, Republicans often are not nearly as different from Democrats as we perceive them to be, as we caricature them to be. And that is an important starting point for realizing why we ought not to think that we are needing to tolerate the intolerant. For the most part, they're not intolerant. So why are we so often intolerant of, quote unquote, them? So I'm really torn on this point because I agree with you that there's a lot of caricature and denunciatory caricature going on about the other side. That when you read newspapers and magazines that I like and that tend to be in accordance with my worldview, the portrait you get of what the average Republican thinks and what the average conservative thinks simply is inaccurate. And I've started to look in quite a lot of detail at opinion polls that are published. And what you find in them is actually that the majority of Americans on virtually every topic is perfectly reasonable. And but there might be a kind of silent majority that isn't exactly represented in either of the two political parties, but it's not the silent majority of Richard Nixon. It's not a reactionary silent majority at all. And I too am heartened by that. At the same time, I think that this idea that the people who are on the other side are willing to risk an awful lot of destruction and are not as tolerant as some of those polls might suggest is given credence by a figure like Donald Trump. I think that argument would have been much harder to make if John McCain had won the 2008 presidential elections or if Mitt Romney had won the 2012 presidential elections and had become the face of the Republican Party. But when you look at some of the statements that Donald Trump makes and the ongoing support for him in a lot of the population, that makes it easy to say, well, look, if these people put up with Donald Trump, then surely they must be intolerant. So how do you reconcile this tension? I reconcile it this way, and there's a lot of research to back up my reconciliation. Many, if not most, of the kinds of Republicans I'm talking about, the tolerant ones, are not voting for Donald Trump. They are actually voting against liberals and progressives. And we know that this is a phenomenon. Political scientists call it negative polarization or negative partisanship. Namely, that far from being advocates and champions of their guy, what they are more motivated by, Republican voters today, is feeling humiliated by people like you and me. Now, when I say people like you and me, of course, I'm not saying that we label Republican voters as evil, intolerant, stupid, ignorant rubes. But many, many of our fellow travelers do, Yasha. And as, again, psychologists have pointed out, humiliation, particularly when it is repeated, sinks its claws deeper into the human psyche than even intense emotions like anger or happiness. So the culture and the cultural power that liberals and progressives wield today, I believe, is being wielded very poorly. And we could be wielding it in a way that brings the holdouts on board rather than, you know, pushing them further into enemy territory.
Yeah, I mean, I think this basis in social science is really interesting. I've been teaching a course recently on democracy and diversity, and I'm really struck thinking through the best social science we have on how people reduce prejudices and intolerance towards each other, for example, that it gives suggestions which run virtually directly counter to a lot of the kinds of practices that are increasingly practiced in diversity trainings and other kinds of institutionalized contexts in the United States. And specifically at the beginning, emphasizing the labels that make us different from each other are precisely a way to code the person we're interacting with as another and to be skeptical of them and to call up in our minds all of the prejudices we might actually hold about them. There's quite a lot of evidence in social psychology of the best way to engage with each other is first of all to have a common goal, is to emphasize a common identity. I mean, that's why sports, I think, can be so helpful. No, you are both members of this team and your goal is to win this game. And then as you get to know each other better, you can start to learn about each other's life experiences. You can start to learn about the way in which people have been deeply influenced by their identity. But that's because you already have the common label and the common identity that facilitates that trust. What does it look like concretely when you say that people are being labeled? What are the bad practices like concretely? And, and what are some of those methods and mechanisms you said you employ uh, both in a more formal context of instruction and interaction with people and in your personal life or on Twitter? Can we learn anything from that? What are some of those methods? Sure. So let me just start my answer by pointing out that you're right, that sometimes being on the, quote, same team, for example, using sports, fandom, if that is the paradigm in which we are still steeped as a way of establishing commonality, certainly helps build trust. My concern, though, about those kinds of methods is that they rely still on an us-against-them paradigm. In a match, whether it's a football match, whether it is a tennis match, there can only be one winner. And then that doesn't translate well over to politics. Because again, we continue to treat politics purely as us against them. Now, in an election, I get why that works, why that's necessary. But in everyday life, it doesn't have to be win-lose. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. So let me give you an example, and this will also address your question about methods. One of my students is born and raised in Mississippi, and she's an African-American hip-hop artist, and she was one of the leading voices in advocating for a change in the Mississippi state flag. She wanted that Confederate-era symbolism wiped away because it was a reminder of the terror that her own family has experienced. Her grandfather actually was murdered by the KKK. She, some time ago, launched an incendiary protest against the Mississippi state flag on a stage at a concert in New York City. And that protest was recorded, a photo of her having a noose around her neck. Again, she's the one who put it around her neck to symbolize the terror of which she spoke. That went viral, that photo. And of course, she was pelted with hate mail from right across the country. And as she scrolled through her social media feeds, she came across a message from somebody named Lewis, a young white guy whom she kind of sort of knew from years and years ago. They went to the same elementary school, but you know, she was in her late 20s, as was he, and they hadn't spoken or seen each other in 25 years. In that message, Lewis said, look, I don't want you dead for you know what you believe, but I also don't agree with you about the need to change the flag. Well, Genesis, this young lady, could have simply kept scrolling past these sorts of messages and deemed him a racist because of the position that he took. But instead, she decided to try something different. She went home to Biloxi, Mississippi, and she invited Lewis to her backyard to literally sit and discuss this issue. And what she wanted to know quite simply was, how did the Mississippi state flag make him feel? She wanted to understand that perspective. And because she started with that very heartfelt, non-intellectual, utterly human question, how does that flag make you feel? 
and he answered, it makes him feel at home. But because she asked him that non-gotcha question, he then felt morally obliged to reciprocate. He asked her, how does it make you feel? And over the course of an afternoon, Lewis came to realize something that he wouldn't have realized without that conversation, that he cared more about the human being named Genesis than he did about the flag itself. And the reason I can tell you this is that I asked him months after that conversation why he has kept deepening his friendship with Genesis. He said, honestly, Irshad, I have never felt the kind of respect from somebody on her side of the issue as I do now. And, you know, the word respect we tend to throw around, right? Respect doesn't mean being agreed with. Respect actually comes from the Latin respectate. Respectate. Look again. Do not take your first impression as the truth. Keep digging, keep asking, keep engaging. That's what he was referring to, the kind of respect. And towards the end of the book, and I'll give something away without spoiling the entire book for potential readers, I called Lewis just to make sure I had a particular fact right. He mentioned to me that he had taken down his Confederate flag, the one that was flying in his backyard, precisely out of respect for Genesis. Nobody forced him to do it. Nobody even asked him to do it. He did this of his own volition. The sorts of quote-unquote tactics came very naturally to Genesis because she does see other people as human beings. So, for example, she went into the conversation with a desire to understand, not to win. She continued to ask questions. Again, not gotcha questions, but questions for the sake of appreciating where Lewis is coming from. I remember at one point, she was being praised by Lewis in that first conversation. He was saying to her, you know, Genesis, lots of people love to complain about what's not going right with the world. Very few people actually do something about it, and you're doing something about it, and I respect that. But rather than taking that compliment as a license to push the envelope further from her perspective, she actually simply thanked him and continued with the kind of intellectual humility that allowed him to feel heard. And that's what allowed also for him to bring more people to the table in a second conversation that they had together as a wider group. There's one other thing I'd like to point out about what we who hold passionate positions tend to fail to do when we enter into discussions we tend to turn them into debates when they don't have to be. And one of the ways we do that is by failing to breathe. I kid you not. Now, I know that hmm. what I'm about to say could come off as self-helpy, but the fact is that there is science behind what I'm saying, that rather than reacting to something with which you disagree, it's really important to just take one breath and that will allow you, typically, by the way, one breath, but if you can spare a second or more for a couple of breaths, even better. Because what you are doing when you breathe is you are slow jamming the primal part of your brain. This is the source of the ego. And the ego is what protects you in a life and death situation. The ego is what tells you instantly that you better fight, freeze, or flee. The problem is, Yasha, that most of us, even in an age of pandemics, most of us are not every day in a life and death situation, but the ego cannot discern this. So if you're feeling threatened by somebody's position, the ego will tell you that your existence is in jeopardy. When you take the time, just one second to breathe, you're giving your biology the opportunity to override the ego and tap into the executive functioning part of the brain where reason and emotion can coexist rather than reason being bulldozed by emotion. 
And that gives you the opportunity to respond rather than merely react. Sometimes the best response is to keep listening. Because that way, as I alluded earlier, you pick up on the values that matter to your other. And with that information, you can actually reframe your point of view in a way that, again, has a shot of being heard. So notice that none of this is about compromising your power. None of this is about diluting your position. You can actually, and this will sound paradoxical if not contradictory, but you can actually stand your ground while seeking common ground. Standing your ground is about the what, the position that you take, but seeking common ground is about the how, how you express your point of view. And if you can do it with the sorts of methods and the many more that I lay out in Don't Label Me, you will be heard in a way that you were never given the opportunity to be heard by your other before. That's really fascinating. And I feel like I will need to demand another hour of your time after we stop this conversation to ask you how we can do some of those things at Persuasion. You know, we have these more or less weekly debates and I call them debates because that's, to me, it's intellectual engagement. It's thinking about the big topics. It should be a debate. But perhaps we can reframe that in ways that are more conducive to finding common ground as you talk about it. Still find great participants in the debates, in the conversations, I suppose, who come from different points of view. And just to hammer but, home this point. But, but frame it in a different kind of way. So, so actually, let me ask you this question right now. I mean, how, if we have intellectual engagement, what's a good way of framing it other than a debate? When we meet somebody and we say, perhaps we have some shared values, we also have some things on which we disagree. We want to have be in conversation with people who don't all have the same opinion, but to be clear from the beginning, because that's what makes it interesting. But we yeah. want to frame it in a way that's more conducive to them finding common ground. How would you do that? Well, to be honest, I would call it a discussion. Now, if there are two very different points of view, people who are coming to the event, to the quote-unquote discussion, will understand that there will be some intellectual tension here. And that's great for drawing people in. But what you are avoiding doing in refusing to call it a debate is you are not implying that this is going to be a contest where there can only be one winner. Because keep in mind, Yasha, that again, given our biological wiring as human beings, if we enter into something that is called a debate or called a contest, the temptation is very high not to listen to the other's point of view and glean information from it, but rather to busy our brains with thinking about how can I respond? How can I show that I'm not weak? How can I make sure that the other person, even if that person is perfectly agreeable, not to say he or she agrees with me, but is convivial. Nonetheless, we will feel the temptation to ensure that, quote, they don't get the better of me. And that's not conducive to mutual growth. Let me give you another very quick example, and this comes from a deeply personal place. Prior to the work that I do today on what I call honest diversity, diversity that includes diversity of viewpoint, I was a reform-minded Muslim. I remain Muslim. I remain reform-minded. But I actually traveled the world as an author of two books about the need for reform in my faith of Islam, liberal reform in my faith of Islam. And needless to say, I took it on the chin and then some from Muslim audiences and often non-Muslim audiences around the world. And after about 10 years of having my guard up, and going into these conversations as if they inevitably will become debates, I decided before the very biggest conversation of my life as a Muslim reformer, namely a program on Al Jazeera called Head to Head, I decided I'm not going to treat this as a debate. Instead, I made an emotional pact with myself, Yasha. Whenever the debater, my other, makes a good point, I'm going to acknowledge that that's a good point. If I don't know how to respond to something legitimately, I'm going to acknowledge I don't know. If I need to take even five seconds to just think about what's been asked of me, I'm going to take that time, even if it feels awkward. I applied all of these techniques 
to a debate, an actual debate. After all, the program is called Head to Head. And I managed to turn it into a conversation that to this day, religious authorities in the world of Islam write to me to say, you know, I was expecting you to come out swinging. And I was expecting to feel defensive as a result. But what you did is you listened, you responded, you were humble. These are not the things that I was told you're about, Irshad Manji. But as a result of what I saw, I'm now thinking about what you said in the debate. And I thank you for giving voice to some of what I've been thinking. That really is inspiring. I mean, by the way, on a side note, I think in an odd way, that's one of the things that's quite winning about Joe Biden, that his instinct is not to come out swinging in a debate. That's exactly right. And can I just add, for what it's worth, that none other than Elizabeth Warren pointed this out when she endorsed him. She actually said that, I'm paraphrasing her, but she used words like, he's humble enough to listen. He knows when he can learn something from somebody with a very different point of view. Now, you know and I know, Elizabeth Warren is a fighter. She herself is not given to humility unless she meets it, you know, unless she is met with humility. And that's what Joe Biden did for her. He showed the humility to allow her to then also have the humility to endorse him in the way that she did. That's very interesting, yeah. You know, I've been thinking about something else while you've been talking, because I have been struggling to put in words my discomfort with a cultural trend, the best example of which is this word Karen, where we sort of call white women Karens in contexts where I suppose they assert themselves in ways that are perceived inappropriate. Perhaps that's a good summary of that trend. That is only, I think, a sub-genre of a wider kind of cultural stance and attitude. In a more extreme form, it's things like the journalist Sarah Jong, who was then hired by the New York Times editorial board, who would tweet things like, you know, hashtag cancel white people, or, you know, it's funny how much joy I get from being cruel to old white men and things like that. And the reason why I've struggled to express my discomfort with those things is that I do understand the difference between that and for example, ethnic slurs that attack underprivileged groups. I do think it makes a difference in this context whether these kinds of terms are directed at people who have been victimized in very deep ways or whether it is sort of perceived in the jargon of the internet as sort of punching up. And yet, I think that the blithe acceptance of this kind of language is really harmful, that there's something about the celebration of these memes, the way in which the mainstream endorses them, is both morally wrong and just deeply politically counterproductive. And I think what you've said gives me the makings of an account of why that is so bad, precisely because it is the opposite of trying to say, listen, I will take a concern seriously and for I'm not going to budge on my position, I will respect you as an equal in this conversation. I'll actually try to convince you. But I feel like you're going to put the discomfort with that much better than I am. So how do you feel about those ways of talking? What is the damage they do? And what would be a better way of talking? Mm. The damage is, frankly, incalculable. They're meant to not just stop conversation before it can even begin, but they're meant to, and you know this word as well as I do, own the other. We've heard the phrase, own the libs. And the libs, so-called, have reciprocated by coming up with a form of owning the right or people whom they perceive to be too conservative to abide. Think of that word, own. What does that suggest, Yasha? It suggests that people are property, that they're not actually human, that they are objects, playthings to be manipulated rather than fellow human beings, to be heard, to be engaged, even if not to be agreed with. This is the dehumanization that so many liberals and progressives claim the, quote, system does. The system dehumanizes, and it so often is true. But they mimic the system when they engage in the kind of brutality that simply repeats what the system does to others. So they're not part of the solution. 
Not at all. And in fact, one of the really important kind of, I think, takeaways from a conversation like this is to ask ourselves, how does payback amount to progress? If you're doing the exact same thing to your other that you are claiming they do to you and quote people like you, how is that progress? How are you actually overturning or eliminating more to the point a rancid hierarchy that used to have white men at the top and everybody else below? How are you eliminating hierarchy when you now have simply flipped it over so that white men are at the bottom and everybody else above them? It's the same game, man. It's not a game changer. All you are doing in that case is exchanging jerseys on the field, but you're not changing the game. And that's a huge missed opportunity for anyone who claims to be interested in justice. And that's part of the thing that I'm also asking activists to think about. You claim that you are for justice. Are you? Be honest. And you don't have to tell me, I say to my students, you don't have to, this is not a struggle session. You know, you don't have to confess anything to me. Just in your private moments, ask yourself, why am I in this fight? Is it, in fact, to solve the problem or is it to perpetuate the fight because it makes me feel good to be part of something bigger than myself? Because this is where I get my identity. And because if the problem was somehow solved, then who would I be? This is, I think, one of the deep problems with the language of privilege. Now, I think there's something that the language of privilege gets at which can be correct or accurate in certain circumstances. I do think that there are certain kinds of unearned status advantages that straight white men have enjoyed in certain societies, and those are unfair, and we need to make sure um, uh, that everybody has the same opportunities and chances to access positions of advantage and so on, as each other. But there is something sort of perverse in many contexts where, for example, a video of a police interaction with a white person who is inebriated or acting aggressively and the police response in a good, thoughtful manner is shared on social media. And people say, oh, look, this is white privilege. And you need to have the sense that they are rooting for the police to treat this individual in an equally unjust manner as we tragically often see police treating other individuals in videos on social media. And it's so strange to me because it is a perfect encapsulation that a lot of the forms of what people now call privilege are things that everybody in society can and should enjoy. So there's a certain kind of context in which we're in the realm of positional goods. You get into a great school because the school has legacy admissions and your parents were at the school. And so you get a spot that perhaps somebody else uh, should fairly have had because you come from a family that enjoys those privileges, let's say. In that context, I understand that language and I think it's perfectly fine. But in so many other contexts, it's used about things where the right answer would not be, let's take this privilege away from you. It would be, let's make sure that everybody in society is treated fairly and adequately in the way that you were in that position. Let's not make sure that the white man or woman who is inebriated or on drugs and acting in an erratic manner experiences police brutality. Let's make sure that as few people as humanly possible experience police brutality in our society. So I think that's a, an interesting thing. But I would love to hear from you what that broader vision would look like when you talk to your student. You say, well, what in your heart do you really want? Do you want just to win? Do you want to own the other? Or do you actually want justice? What do you think it would look like in our society to fight for and aim for justice, particularly when it comes to these questions of race, of diversity, of privilege, I suppose? Well, so the foundation that I've launched, the Moral Courage Project, literally teaches a new generation how to engage on issues that are otherwise polarizing. And what it would look like is that a new generation, through teachings like this and through years of being taught how to engage respectfully, how to engage with an appreciation of one's own power rather than 
simply assuming that everybody else is powerful and I am powerless. What it would look like is that this generation then would be ready to face not just the global challenges, not even just the civilizational challenges that we're all now having to grapple with, but think about it. We are in the midst now of existential challenges from climate change to mass migration, often spurred by climate change, to the unintended consequences of artificial intelligence and what the implications are for humanizing one another, to the rise of populisms left and right. If a new generation is taught only to make the same mistakes, Yasha, as your and mine have, namely to impose an answer on everybody else who disagrees with it, then they're only sowing the seeds of blowback. And so the needle will not move on any of these existential challenges. All that will move is the hamster wheel of dogma with cynicism deepening and the noise amplifying. God help us all. Instead, I want and am working for the day when a critical mass of people who are in their teen years now will recognize that not only can we communicate across lines of disagreement, but that we must because diversity is not merely about demographics, but is also about how individuals think, including individuals within identity groups. You know, my story is a perfect example of the fact that all Muslims don't think alike. Some have been appalled by my position on any number of human rights issues. Others have been delighted by it. And most are somewhere in between. To treat one another as avatars of this group or that group, to quote, locate people at a quote, intersection, as if, again, people are static things that when you locate them, that's where they are, that's where they belong, and they will never move because they are not dynamic, they are inert. That is the essence of dehumanizing. So we have to move beyond critical race theory, beyond intersectionality, to expand our definition of diversity and recognize one another as exactly what we all are, namely plurals. And as such, we cannot legitimately be reduced to one or another cohort, one or another identity group, one or another tribe. You're reminding me of a question that I had earlier in the conversation and then we went in a slightly different direction, which is that I see the danger of labeling. I see the danger of saying you are defined by your identity group. And I particularly see the constriction of legitimate political opinion that comes from that. I think there's a very telling line by Anna Presley, a new member of the House of Representatives, who's probably the least well-known member of the so-called squad, who said, you know, I no longer want any brown politicians who are not a brown voice. I no longer want any black politicians who are not a black voice. It is the idea for, you know, I obviously prefer him for the upcoming election that Joe Biden expressed when he said, well, if you vote for Trump and you're not really black, right? It's the idea that people like Thomas Chatterton Williams are often exposed to on social media, that there's something not truly or sufficiently black about them because they disagree, for example, with people like, like Ibram Kendi, which is ridiculous because actually when you look at opinion polls, the views of Thomas are probably closer to that of most African-Americans in this country on any number of issues than those of the people who are being elevated as the spokespeople for the community. So I agree with the importance of insisting on pluralism and subtlety within that. I guess that seems different from me than to define diversity primarily on ideological grounds, which is to say that I can see that, you know, we could certainly assemble a debate of 20 people who have every conceivable political opinion uh, and yet, if they were all white men, uh, there would be something missing from that context and from that debate. 
So I love my classroom, right? Because my classroom is incredibly diverse. And I think that is something, and it is incredibly diverse in, in, in the sense of identity. I mean, it is students who come from every corner of the world, uh, many of whom have grown up and were born in the United States, but have recent roots around the world who are ethnically diverse or religiously diverse. And that does enrich the classroom, but it is in part because I try to foster an atmosphere in which they can bring in their experiences, they can bring in their stories, they can bring in their perspectives, certainly. But we are trying to all be co-equal thinkers about a topic in which, though you are going to be informed by who you are, your opinion hopefully won't be completely set or determined by who you are. The link that you draw between your own story and the view you're developing about a subject or about the world can end up being more idiosyncratic than people would assume. It is not that because you're brown or black, you're going to be, quote unquote, a brown or black voice in the way that somebody like Presley might define it. But that is still, I guess, more closely related to demographic diversity. So I guess my question is, what role, if any, should demographic diversity play and how does it intersect with a more ideological dimension of diversity? Sure, yeah. Well, let me first say that demographic diversity does matter to a whole lot of people. And again, studies have shown that when young people see themselves reflected, represented as the lingo is, you know, somebody else in a position of authority, they feel more confident that they can aspire to that kind of power, that kind of authority, you know, that kind of legitimacy. So by no means am I suggesting that demographic diversity doesn't matter. What I'm saying is that it is not all there is to diversity. And I'm with you, Yasha, among my students as well. I appreciate I encourage demographic diversity simply because it's obvious that if you are a person of color, as I am, you are going to have somewhat different experiences than somebody who is not of color. That's obvious, and I not only accept that, I embrace that reality. But as you pointed out, you are not merely defined by those experiences, even when they are positive experiences, that there is so much more, not just to you as a person of color, but also to a white person than what meets the eye. I think if you make, as a professor, if somebody else as a CEO makes a serious and stated and sincere commitment to diversity within your orbit, in your case, that might be a classroom, in the CEO's case, in the workplace, I would suggest start, this is nuanced, so I hope not to misspeak, start with a commitment to diversity of viewpoint. If you are serious about that commitment, then diversity of demographics will follow, precisely because people of different demographics will have different experiences and therefore different ideas and opinions and even interpretations of the human experience than people who are not of color. But what you are avoiding when you start with diversity of viewpoint as your starting point, you are avoiding creating walls, creating instant walls. You are not saying to white people, your day is done. It's over for you you no longer have a place in this organization or in this conversation. You're not giving anybody the ammo to become defensive. And yet you are still carrying out the vision of diversity that marries demographics with viewpoint, individuality with communal experience. I think that that is not just much more subtle, but again, much more effective as a way to minimize conflict while maximizing engagement. And let's face it, if all your diversity is about is compliance, you're giving people a negative reason to abide by the kind of vision that you've got. That doesn't last, just like humiliation. Nobody wants to be told what to do. And so their adherence to the so-called rules will be grudging, and ultimately will die out over time. But if you make caring about one another because we relate to one another as individuals, as human beings, and as plurals, if you make that the North Star, caring rather than compliance, there's really no limit to what people can do together creatively 
what they can innovate together because they're not coming to the table with brewing resentments that they feel that they can't even talk about, let alone deal with. That's fascinating. Let me ask you a, a last question to round our conversation off, which is that I know you work a lot with young people and with students. You teach at college, but also high school students, middle school students about these topics. How optimistic or pessimistic are you about the possibility that they might embrace diversity and they might embrace tolerance in a better and a deeper sense than many adults currently do? You've actually, perhaps unwittingly, Yasha, drawn a very important distinction kids and adults. There is very recent data to show that teens and tweens today are much more open to diverse points of view, even as they remain and develop their commitment to solving the massive issues that I talked about earlier, climate change and so forth. Even as they remain committed to addressing that, they want to hear different points of view. Y Pulse, letter Y, and Pulse to follow. Y Pulse is probably the leading market research firm focusing on youth in this country. And they've come out with stats to show that most young people in this country believe that both the left and the right have gone too far in their extremism. There are other stats that I would happily bring into a piece that I write for persuasion, so we'll count on that in the not-too-distant future. But I can also back this up with my own experiences with young people. Many who are liberal have said that I want to hear from my conservative peers, and I don't think it's fair that they feel the need to self-censor at school. What is interesting, though, is that adults, their teachers, and their parents disagree. Their parents feel the need to protect these kids from offensive points of view. But offensive to whom? Not offensive to the kids, offensive to them as adults. Teachers also feel the need to prevent the corruption of young minds. God help, you know, Socrates spinning in his grave right now. The point is, is that if we left it up to the kids to learn the how of engaging with one another respectfully and artfully, they'd be great. They'd be just fine. And I can tell you, the middle schoolers and high schoolers, to say nothing of the undergrads I've worked with over the years, they love learning how to communicate effectively with their so-called others. It's their teachers and their parents who have an issue with it. And that's part of the challenge. How do you square that with the rise of censorious habits in colleges around the country? There's attempts you know, by incoming students to get the college to revoke the admission of certain members of the entering class because of various pieces of things they've written on social media. I've heard about this from a good number of colleges and universities just in the last few days. Please. There's the trending hashtags on social media, you know, so-and-so is over party. There's a different one every couple of days now. So there does seem to be an appetite and a pleasure in that exercise of power, in that cancellation of people. Of course there is. Again, you know, the censorious folks are human too, right? And their egos are raging. They have not been taught that everything does not have to be zero sum. Quite the opposite. Critical race theory, right, teaches that everything needs to be looked at through the lens of power. And moreover, it's a binary lens. Either you are powerful and therefore the oppressor, or you are powerless and therefore the victim. There is no idea in critical race theory that by dint of having brains and therefore egos, each of us has a certain amount of power to frame situations in the way that makes us feel good. And therefore, we ought to be aware of our power and use it wisely. No, there's nothing like that. So number one, many of these, let's say, freshmen who are insisting and making demands from their point of view have certainly not been taught moral courage. If they have, it's only defined as speak truth to power. Again, with their truth being the only truth worth listening to and power always being outside of them. Hence the need to speak truth to power rather than to one's own ego as well. But the other thing to point out is that Again, as anywhere, it's the most vocal individuals who get the airtime, who get the airplay. 
we're not thinking about the silenced majority. We don't pay attention to them precisely because they are silent by dint of being silenced. They are afraid to speak up. Nobody wants to be labeled a racist or a misogynist or a transphobe or an Islamophobe or a homophobe. Nobody wants to be labeled that. So, you know, the calculation is, why would I speak up? Who's doing the capitulating, as in taking Woodrow Wilson's name off of a building at Princeton? Who's doing that caving? It is adults who are doing that. And no less a figure than Cornell West, God bless him, has come out to say that he disagreed with that decision because the process was not a democratic one. It was top-down. A bunch of faculty and students demanded it, the administration agreed to it, and there was no discussion about it. It warranted a teachable moment. And yet, even in the world of education, we are forfeiting teachable moments, left, right, and center, but mostly left. So I desperately want to end this conversation on an optimistic note, but at the moment I feel torn. So help me exit it on an optimistic <laughs> note, as it were, which is that I believe you that there is a great number of kids who want to learn this form of moral courage, who do want to have real conversations, who don't want classmates of theirs who disagree with them to feel uncomfortable about speaking out. I also see, though, that some of the people who are the loudest voices in this, who have this weapon of accusing others of terrible moral or thought crimes, can very quickly get a big platform and then can get the adults to listen to them, even if they don't represent the majority opinion. So it seems to me that the only way that we could avoid that very loud set of voices taking over is to create a counter-norm that when you call for somebody to be cancelled, you're not cancelled in turn, that is not the right response, but people push back and say, this is BS, we don't do things like this, stop doing it. But we're not there yet. So do you think we'll get there? Do you think that's something that this rising generation of teens and tweens will push for? And if not, won't the loud voices keep winning out? Well, Yasha, if you and I and your many listeners have anything to do with it, the teens and tweens will get there because they have the intrinsic motivation, not every last one of them, but certainly both from research and from my own experiences, I see that they are intrinsically motivated not to label, not to reduce one another. And in fact, take real umbrage and cringe when they themselves are labeled by an older generation. So I do think that we can get to the point where pluralism of thought and not just of demographics can restore and frankly revivify our democracy. But it's going to take people like us, including your listeners, not to throw in the towel. It's going to take us also not to react to the folks who are censorious by pushing back in our own in-your-face ways. It's going to take many of us to engage. And you'd be surprised how many actually want to be engaged and in some cases are hollering because they've never been heard. Not everybody. Some people, as I said earlier, their egos are out of control. And you know what? That means that after engaging, after we try to understand whether they have any room to negotiate for a truly just world, if they don't, then we thank them and we walk away. So I'm not suggesting that we hit our heads up against a brick wall. But just like Lewis in the story that I told of Genesis and Lewis and the Mississippi state flag, let us not assume based on a position that somebody takes that they're not worth our breath. Let us not prematurely walk away because we don't know how much social change we're leaving on the table when we do. Well, I don't know if that's made me more optimistic or more pessimistic, but it certainly energized me. So thank you for that wonderful end of a conversation and thank you for your great insights, Yasha Manji. Thank you so much, Yasha. 
Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.